No, but I can bellow. All right. So anyway, love you. Uh, we have been talking about love for about three or four weeks. Last week, we took a look at what to Jesus was his thesis in, on life when one of the uh, religious leaders kind of confronted him and said, well, okay, well, what would you say is the most important commandment in life? How would you sum up all of the law, all of the prophets? And Jesus simply said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, or he is Lord alone. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said this pretty much encompasses all of the, the prophets, all of the law, everything that's been taught. And last week, we looked at that first part, the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God. And we talked about how love there does not mean this warm, fuzzy feeling as if we can kind of conjure that up. What they're talking about when he commands us to love God is simply a decision to orient our lives around the object of our love. And in this instance, God, and I want you to think for just a moment, this is just kind of review from last week. When you truly love something, Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's, I don't know, a band or, you know, I know that, for instance, our new youth minister loves Star Wars, right? And so when you love something, you orient your life around it. You are willing to spend time to, you know, not only study that or or be around that. You just want to be around that individual. You are willing to invest money into that, everything you've got kind of takes a backseat to the object of your love and you orient your life around it. And in the instance of, or in the case of God, he's simply saying, God alone is God. There is no other God worthy of your reverence, worthy of your worship, worthy of you to orient your life around. Therefore, love him, choose to submit to him and with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with every moment of your life, and with all of your strength, everything you've got, submit your life to him and allow him to be Lord of your life. And then on the heels of that, Jesus points to a second commandment. He said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. This is actually a a statement that comes up in virtually every one of the gospel messages I think, other than John, it comes up in every of the the three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this declaration of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in Luke, we actually find a, a similar interaction. This is not the same interaction that we looked at last week, but a similar one. Once again, Jesus was being confronted by one of the Pharisees, one of the teachers of the law. This is in Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 25. We read that on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Interesting that he was going to test him. But again, we talked about how as Jesus' popularity began to grow, the religious elite, the teachers, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, began to be a little bit mistrustful of him and began to see him as a dangerous person. And so they began to look for any and every way that they could discredit Jesus. And some of them just wanted to know, is this guy for real? Is he really a rabbi worth listening to? And so he wanted to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? There was this disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about whether there was even a resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees went, of course there is. And the Sadducees went, nope, it's all about this life here and now. And so Jesus, kind of recognizing that this guy is testing him and recognizing that he's, he's kind of baiting him a little bit, trying to get him to weigh in on a very controversial subject, said, all right, well, let me ask you this question. And as he did so often in his teaching, when Jesus was asked a question, he didn't always answer with an answer. Instead, he answered with another question to draw out the person and really to kind of get the heart of where they're coming from. So Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And this man replied, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So he answers in the same way that Jesus had with another time. Hey, oh, there we go. That's not how he responded. <laughs> His response was in Greek. I have no idea what that would have been. He said, you have answered correctly. Do this. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself and you will live. But this man, this, this teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. Interesting word there. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? I always come to that line and I, and I start going, well, how does him wanting to justify himself lead him to ask, well, who is my neighbor? Like, is he still testing Jesus or, or is there something else going on? So I started like digging into a little bit what other rabbis had taught on this question of, what constitutes my neighbor, the, the people that I'm supposed to care for? And this is one of the responses I found. This is from the book of Sirach. You can go ahead and throw that quote up there. Uh, this is not from the Bible. Okay, This is not found in Old or New Testament. This is from the book of Sirach, which is part of some rabbinic teaching. Rabbis who would teach their followers, write it down. These were all codified into books, and we have these today as well. And so this is what one rabbi taught. If you do good, know to whom you do it, and you will be thanked for your good deeds. Do good to the devout, and you will be repaid. If not by that person, then certainly by the Most High God. No good, however, comes to one who persists in evil, to the one who does not give alms. So give to the devout, to the righteous, to the good, but do not help the sinner. Interesting. Let me repeat read that last line again. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. This was rabbinic teaching. And in, in that rabbi's mind, a person's neighbor only extended so far as to the family of God that you're surrounded with. Those who are righteous, those who are following and declare that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is their God and submitting to him. Those who are truly loving the Lord, their God, with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength they constitute one's neighbor and they alone are worthy of you caring for them. And so this guy in asking, well, who's my neighbor is literally asking, all right, so what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I got the loving God. So who exactly do I have to love in order to be declared righteous in God's sight? He's basically asking just how far out does my scope of care need to go for me to be declared righteous in God's sight. And now Jesus does answer that question, but he doesn't do so directly. Instead, he gives him a story so that this teacher of the law can recognize it for himself. <clears throat> Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read that, this story that Jesus shares, and then we're going to go back through and look at it again. 
verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so, too, when a Levite saw him, he, when he came to that place, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you might have. Now let's pause there for a moment because we're all so familiar with that story that it's very easy to gloss over it. And in a lot of ways, we've even lost kind of the, the audacity of that story. And it would have been an audacious story. It would have caused some people in that audience to kind of go, what? Like, are you kidding me? And I think it's lost on us because of the amount of space and the social differences that we have from, that, from Jesus' day. So let's go back through this for just a moment and see if we can kind of reconstruct the, um, the context. So we're going back to verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. A lot of Jerusalem was like the political and cultural and especially the religious nexus of all of Israel. This is where the temple was. This is this was their Washington D.C. and and you know you pick whatever. I mean this was the central city in all of Israel. It was also very expensive to live. So most people who worshipped and served in Jerusalem lived outside of it in some of these towns around it, in the suburbs of it. Same way that some people who live in the city will commute to it. And so can we throw uh, the picture up there? This is part of what's called the way of blood. It's the road that connects Jerusalem to Jericho. And as you can see, it's a winding, very thin path through some really steep canyons there are a lot of caves up there where people could hide, and oftentimes robbers, it was called the way of blood because robbers would hide up in those hills watching for somebody who looked vulnerable to become walking along this winding pathway. And in one of those places where they were, they were, they were feeling pretty vulnerable, they would attack them, beat them up, steal their stuff, and go and hide again. Take off. They could get away easily. They could throw the body down the hill, and people would typically just ignore them. And it was a place where people were vulnerable. So Jesus, although I believe that this is a, a story that Jesus is making up, it's not a true story. He uses a place they would have been familiar with. And he says, a man was walking down the way of blood from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets attacked by robbers, as probably happened on a regular basis. They beat him up, take everything he has, including his clothes, and leave him for dead. Well, around sometime later, a, a priest traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably heading home from having served in the temple, comes walking along and he sees this man bloody and beaten on the side of the road. And rather than moving towards him, he, he moves away from him. Now, there's a lot of reasons that that could be. Possibly it's because he looked at the body and he said, well, if that's a dead body and I were to go and touch it, that would make me ceremonially unclean. So I can't get anywhere near him. Or maybe he's thinking, what if the robbers are actually waiting up in the hills to attack me. And if I stop and help him, I'm placing myself in danger. For, for whatever reason, whatever his motives were, the Pharisee doesn't move towards the man 
I'm sorry, not the Pharisee, this priest, this worker in the temple, this man of God doesn't move towards him. Instead, he moves to the side of the road and hurries on as quickly as he can. In the same way, a Levite, a worker in the temple, he would be kind of a, a modern day deacon, somebody who serves like a lay leader, serving in the temple. He comes by, he sees the man's body, he also passes by on the side of the road and hurries on. And then comes the Samaritan. And in our dialect, in our day and age, we use a good Samaritan as anybody who sees someone in need, stops and helps them. And we get that from this passage. But a Samaritan in Jesus' day and age, now this is the part that makes this audacious. A Samaritan was not a loved person in that society. Because Samaritans were looked at as religious and cultural half-breeds. Just a little bit of background on this. When the northern kingdom of Israel was attacked by Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria pretty much kicked all of the Jews out of the land and began to put their own people into it. Most of the Jews went into to kind of just scattered to the wind, but there were some who refused to leave the land. And when these Assyrian hordes came and squatted on the land, they started intermarrying with them. And the children that were produced from those relationships were the Samaritans. And so Jews looked at them as cultural and religious half-breeds, people who had rebelled and, and kind of abandoned their God and interbred with the conquerors. And they hated them for it. And by the way, there was no love lost on the Samaritan side because for the Samaritans, when the temple was rebuilt after the people were allowed to come back into Jerusalem, the Samaritans like, hey, we want to help. And, and the people who were rebuilding the temple said, no, we don't want any help from you guys. You've lost that opportunity when you decided to embrace Assyrian you know, squatters. And so they said, fine, if you're not going to let us worship at that temple, we'll build our own temple here on our own land. Well, the Israelites thought that that was absolutely unokay to have a second temple. So they ultimately destroyed the Samaritan temple and razed the land all around it, just destroyed the place. The Samaritans, in retaliation, around the time that Jesus was born, actually brought, a group of Samaritans brought some bones of dead people and scattered them inside the temple of God. It would be tantamount to somebody breaking into our church here and spray-painting swastikas and curse words all over the walls. Desecrated it. So can you see that there was, a, there was very little love lost between these two groups of people? In a lot of ways, they were like two rival gangs who would have been happy for the other one simply to cease to exist. <clears throat> and then Jesus says this. A priest and a Levite come walking down the road. They see a guy on the side of the road. They pass by on the other side and hurry on. A Samaritan comes walking by. When he saw this man, he took pity on him. And he alone moved towards him, knelt down, and helped him. He took the things from his bag that he had, some strips of, of cloth and t probably tore a shirt or something like that and bound his wounds, poured some oil and some wine on him to cleanse his wounds, put him on his donkey, took him into town, found an inn, and paid for him to stay at that inn. And then he said, I'm going to come back and check on him. And then Jesus, finishing up his story in verse 22, <clears throat> I'm sorry, no, uh, finishing it up in verse 36, he says this, to this teacher of the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robber? Now, remember what his question was. Who is my neighbor? 
Jesus tells a story and then completely flips the question around. Which of these three guys was a neighbor to this man? And the teacher of the law can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan? So instead he says, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say the Samaritan. That race, that culture was that kind of despised. But then Jesus responds, okay, now then go and do likewise. Love this man. I'm sorry. Go care for other people the same way that the Samaritan was a neighbor to that man that he didn't even know, who was from a completely different culture. There's a few things that I want us to notice as we go through this. Three things, in fact, that I want to point out. First thing, I'll ask a question. Who saw the man who was bloody beaten on the side of the road? All of them. All three of them saw that man. And yet only one, the Samaritan, was willing to stop and help him. Now, all three of them, because I've been thinking a lot about their motives, all three of them had places to go, things to do. Either they were coming from Jericho, heading to Jerusalem to go work, or they were heading back from Jerusalem to Jericho where they probably lived. They wanted to get home. They needed to get to work. They had people to see, things to do. All of them were busy. But only one of them was interruptible. All three of them had things to do. And I get feeling busy. I get seeing a need and feeling like I have no time to help. And this is a silly example, but I'm one of those guys that when I get behind the wheel of my car, I get tunnel vision on where I'm trying to get. You know, if the freeway is wide open, I am, I guarantee you, I'm in the fast lane going just a little bit over the speed limit, trying to get to where I want to go. And if there's traffic, Much to my wife's chagrin, I am one of those people who weave in and out of traffic, lane to lane, trying to figure out which lane is going to go faster than the other. And this lane starts moving. I try to get over there. And every once in a while, I look over on the side of the road as I'm going. I don't often do this, but when I see somebody on the side of the road broken down, there's this little ping in my heart that says, you going to stop? And I want to, part of me wants to. But then my mind starts going, well, I can't stop. I mean, first off, I'm in the fast lane. There's no way I could safely get across there without endangering myself and everybody else on the freeway. So I can't get over there in time. But even if I could, what am I going to do? I'm not Jeff Blum. The last time I tried to help somebody with a broken down car, I probably destroyed her engine by putting five quarts of oil into a a car that probably takes two quarts because I don't have a clue. So you don't want me working on her car. Thirdly, everybody today has a cell phone, so she, he or she has probably already called somebody, already taken care of, and by the time I've been running all these things through my mind, I'm already 200 yards down the freeway, past the one off-ramp I could have taken to go double back, and it's too late. And I miss that opportunity, and I stay in the fast lane, and I keep going. Oh, well, next time, right? That might be a silly example, but I could look at any part of my life You know, my boys will come in and they're always wanting attention. They're always wanting to talk. And if I'm on my computer, my boys will want to come in and talk. A a tendency would be to like turn around and go, what? And I'm kind of giving them only half attention. Where in reality, what, what my body posture is telling them is I'm not available. I'm busy doing this right now. I think all of us are busy. But the invitation that we see from the Samaritan is it's okay to be busy, but we must be interruptible. Jesus was the king of this. So often in Jesus' ministry, he'd be going down the road, he's surrounded 
by groups of people. Some of them his disciples, other people just wanting to hear what he has to say. He always had a place to go to teach people, to heal people, lots to do. And then there would be that person on the side of the road. Maybe it's a leper off separated from everybody else. Or maybe it's a blind person sitting on the side of the road going, Jesus, have mercy on me. And everybody in his entourage is like, Shh, leave him alone. He's too busy. Just be quiet. But every time, if you look through the, the Gospels, you'll see this again and again. Every time one of those opportunities came, despite the fact that Jesus had a place to go and he was busy, he was always interruptible. And time and time again, he would move over towards that person, get down where they were and go, what do you need? I want my sight or I want to be healed. I want to be clean. And Jesus would meet those needs. So the first question I have for us this morning is we may be busy, but are you interruptible? You might step, you know, argue, well, maybe maybe it wasn't that they were busy. Maybe it wasn't that they were in a hurry to get somewhere. Maybe they were truly just concerned for their own safety. Because let's not forget, Eric, this is called the way of blood for a reason. They're on a pathway where there are robbers, and now they have a tangible reminder that there are robbers in the area. There's a guy bloody, beaten, and left for dead. I was, I was reading some, some stuff from Martin Luther King this week, given that it was Martin Luther King's uh, you know, day on Monday. And so it felt, felt fitting to, to quote this from one of his sermons on this very parable. This is what Martin Luther King wrote. He said, it's possible that the priest... And the Levite looked over at the man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to lure them there for a quick and easy seizure. Right. So maybe he's he maybe he's faking it. And they're like, I won't be safe if I go towards them. And so the first question that the priest asked and the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Seems like a reasonable question. But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Remember that the question that the man asked was, How do I love my neighbor as myself? That's what Jesus is really getting at in this. How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, one way we need to do that is by remembering that we are not the only ones with needs. And actually slowing down long enough to ask ourselves, what is that person's need? And what will happen if I don't respond? Because our minds are really good at coming up with all of the reasons why we shouldn't stop and help somebody. You come out of a store and there's somebody begging for money seeing that more and more these days as things are getting more and more tight and there are more and more people who are homeless in our community. Somebody begging for money and the first thought in our mind is, I don't want to give this guy money. I don't know what he's going to do. He's going to probably spend it on alcohol or drugs or cigarettes or something. And besides, I need the money. I have a a friend who makes a point of when he sees somebody like that, he invites them to go and get food. And I'll do that too from time to time. Like, hey, can I buy you something? That's a much better response. But my friend goes one step further. He goes, can I buy you lunch? And then he goes into the establishment, buys them lunch, sits down and has a meal with that individual and invites them to share their story with them. And in the process, he learns about where this person is and kind of begins to go, are there things that I can help direct them towards that will do more than simply feed them for a moment? 
A lot of us are so busy that we, we wouldn't even, that just seems like terrifying to take the time to actually sit down with somebody and get to know them and go beyond simply putting some food in their mouth for a moment. It's almost easier to hand them a $20 bill and walk. So not only are we called to be busy but interruptible, we need to slow down long enough to actually recognize the needs of those around us. And there are a lot of very needy, very hurting people, not just out there, in here. I met with a girl this week who is hurting because she's been living at a home um, the people that she's living with that she's been renting a room from are up until 2 a.m. in the morning and then the, another group of them are waking up at 7. She's like, I'm not sleeping. And then it's affecting my ability to, to work and all of these kind of things and going to school. And I'm just desperate for a, a place that is relatively quiet. And that's just one of the examples of many of those. I mean, there are many of you here who are just trying to figure out how you know, to pay the bills, how to keep the, the power on in your house. There are some of you in here who are struggling with an addiction that is absolutely dominating your life. Others of you in here who have, are grieving through things and you're feeling utterly alone. Because let's be honest here, when things get tough, our tendency, other than after the first initial wave of kind of moving towards somebody who goes through something hard, then all of a sudden it gets quiet and people feel alone because we don't know what to do. It feels overwhelming to try to figure out how to meet somebody in the midst of the messiness of their life. And so sometimes it's just easier to give them space. And when you're going through tough stuff, that's, one of, that's oftentimes the loneliest time of your life because you feel utterly alone in it. And the invitation as the people of God is to move towards people, even if we don't know how to meet their needs, to move towards them and simply say, you're not alone in this. So be busy. It's okay to be busy, but we need to be interruptible. And then secondly, it's okay to be concerned for our needs, but we also need to stop long enough to go, what are, what are your needs? What are my neighbor's needs? To study what is going on around us. And then thirdly, something I want us to notice is, what do we do once we recognize those needs? Let's take a look at how the Samaritan responded once he recognized the need. <clears throat> go back to verse 34. The Samaritan went to him, and he bandaged his wounds. Again, he, this was in a day and age when they didn't have band-aids, and they didn't carry around first aid kits. So chances are he probably started tearing some strips off of a shirt. Maybe it was the one he was wearing. Maybe it was one that he had with him. But he started tearing some strips of cloth off and started binding up those wounds. And then he pulled out oil and wine. You're like, what is that for? Like, is he just kind of like, hey, you know? No, he, he was... Oil and wine together was kind of an antiseptic. It was to clean the wounds and help the healing process. So he poured oil and wine on them to actually start helping him heal. Then he put the man on his donkey. So I have some, a, a, a way to get him somewhere. He sticks him on his donkey and walked along beside the hurting man. He took him to an inn. And rather than just dropping the guy off and hoping the innkeeper would have a little bit of compassion for it, he reached into his coin purse and pulled out two silver coins, two denarii, which from our understanding was the equivalent, uh, one denarii was the equivalent of one day's wage. This is no small sum of money. In fact, depending on wh where the inn was, this would be the equivalent of maybe getting this guy a couple of weeks worth of food and lodging. And he didn't even stop there. 
Then he said to the innkeeper, take care of him, feed him. I'm going to be back in a little bit. And when I do, if there's any extra expenses over and above what I've already spent, I will pay it. The Samaritan looked at this man and basically said, if I were in that position, how would I want somebody to care for me? And that's what he did to this man. And notice that he didn't do anything beyond what he already had. He had all of those resources. And every time in Scripture that God called his people to do something, he never said, go and do this. And like, well, we don't have the ability to do that. Oftentimes they would feel like they didn't have the ability to do it. But he would always ask this question, well, what's in your hand? Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. Dude, God, you got the wrong guy. He won't even believe that you sent me. All right, well, Moses, what's in your hand? What? I got a staff. Throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake. Pick it back up. He picks it back up. It turns into a staff. Use that as one tangible example of the fact that I am has sent you. Hey, Jesus talking to his disciples. See the crowds of people that have come? Feed them something. They're hungry. Jesus, we don't even have enough money to buy one little mouthful of food for everybody here. There's no way. Well, what do you have? What's in your hand? Uh, we got a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. It's enough. Have everybody sit down. He prays over it. He multiplied it. And he, he fed everybody. God doesn't ask us to do what we cannot do with things we do not have. But he often says, will you take the things that I blessed you with and use them to bring them to bear on the needs that I bring to your attention? Will you be my representatives? And that's the question for us today. Are we willing to take the things that he has entrusted to our care and slow down long enough to recognize the needs of the people around us and then say, the things that I have are not simply for my comfort. I would love to be able to keep Clint, lock him up and say, sorry, you don't get to go anywhere. But the reality is that's against the law. His wife would be upset and I'm more, con- I'm more concerned about that than anything. And then thirdly, he's not ours to keep. It is both sad because we are giving a couple that has absolutely had a tremendous influence in our church, but at the same time, it's a joy to be able to say they're going to bless a community we don't even know, but they're part of the kingdom of God, and who knows how God is going to use them there. I am excited for that. And everything we have is basically fodder for God to say, are you willing to meet this need? Probably the best picture we got of this is with Jarvis from a a, a month ago. Remember him? the kid that we got to meet who was from Kenya, who had been living in his car, homeless, and just trying to figure out a way to get home. And one night his friend Gavin and he run into one another, and Gavin goes, hey, my grandparents have a spare room. I know that they would let you stay there for a little bit. He didn't even ask. But he brought Jarvis home to the Whitlocks' home. (laughs) And I love this picture of Nancy Whitlock kind of coming out of her room, and here's this guy with a towel walking into, she'd never met him before, walking in to take a shower. She's like, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm Gavin's friend. He's like, well, wonderful. See you in the morning for breakfast. Grab a shower. Hey, enjoy, the, enjoy your sleep. And then they, they not only gave him a place to stay that night, but the next day and the next day and for about a week and a half, he stayed with them. They fed him three meals a day. They spent time with him getting to know him. And as they got to know him, they said, this is a kid who God is doing something. And we have a unique opportunity to just 
use what God has entrusted to us. Part of those things is a room for him to stand and some food and some time that they could spend with him. But part of that was we have a community of other people. They didn't have thousands of dollars that they could throw at the problem and buy him a plane ticket. But they had a community of people. And they said, let's, let's invite Jarvis to come to church. And a few of us got to know him. And we said, hey, here's an opportunity for us to be part of obviously what God is doing. Then he got to share a little bit of his story. And you guys bought him a plane ticket to go back home to Kenya. And today he's home because of the Whitlock's willingness to use what God had entrusted to their care. I think of Tony Pekka, another one in our church who God has entrusted with a lot of talents. Not only was he a fireman, but he had, has learned how to work with his hands. And there's actually quite a few of you here who have learned how to work on things. He built his own house. And so last week I got a call from one of you saying, we have this stove that died and so we bought a new one and it doesn't fit in our space and we don't know what to do. We can't set it up. And so I knew exactly what to do. I called Tony because I don't have the ability. I would wreck their countertops. But I called Tony. I say, Tony, they're having an issue. And he's like, I'm on it. He went over there and he very quickly got that thing set up. I've got, you know, Gene Getz is another one of those. When I have stuff breaking down, Gene, I need help. And he's over there in a, in a heartbeat. What has God entrusted to your care? For some of you, it's time. For some of you, it's the talents that you have learned, gleaned over years and years. And for some of us, it's our treasures, the things that we've accumulated, our homes, our cars, our money, uh, you know, our abilities. And we just say, hey, it's not mine to hold on to. I have not been blessed simply for my own comfort. I have been blessed to be a blessing so that I can shine as an ambassador of hope and reconciliation in the darkness. And the invitation that we get, that, that Jesus was basically saying through this story, is there was one guy of three that understood this. It was a Samaritan man. The last person you would expect to move towards this bloody and beaten guy was the Samaritan. Yet he went above and beyond. He was a neighbor to a man that he didn't even know. Now go and do likewise. So that's our invitation. Are you willing to be interruptible? Are you willing to slow down long enough to recognize the needs around us? Now, that, to that question of recognizing the needs around us, because we are in the midst of a community. Yes, we have needs here in our own community, but there are also things going on beyond the walls of this church, and we are called to be a light. We're not called just to kind of be in a holy huddle and take care of our own needs. We have a tremendous homeless issue going on in our midst. And a lot of that has to do some with mental health, but also simply because of where finances are at. We have a tremendous amount of people who are in the midst of recovery. They call this the the rehab Riviera for a reason. There are a lot of people who are coming to Costa Mesa and Newport Beach in order to kind of get back on solid footing. And then we have just you go across the freeway into West Side Costa Mesa and there is a tremendous cultural kind of swing And we're trying to navigate, you know, English as a second language and and walking with people and just knowing how do I love my neighbor when I don't speak the same language? How do I love my neighbor when we're from different socioeconomic standpoints, when we're from different cultural backgrounds, when the communication is difficult? How do I love my neighbor? I don't know. What are their needs? I don't even know the best way to care for somebody or the resources that I've got at my fingertips. Just love them. But can we do it from an informed standpoint? And so toward that end, 
we want to begin to inform ourselves. And here's one opportunity to inform ourselves. Can you throw the, the, the training up? Uh, coming up next month on February 25th, by the way, there are about 12 or 14 other churches having this similar conversation of how do we love our neighbor over the course of this next month, all leading up to February 25th when um, there's going to be a Know My Neighbor training event at Grace Fellowship Church. A lot of people from a lot of different churches are going to come together and just begin to ask the question, how can we care for the people in our midst? How can I be a neighbor? If you're interested in this and you'd like more information, it's February 25th, which is a Thursday from 7 to 9 p.m. Indicate that on your connection card, drop it in the offering, and I'll make sure to get you all of the information on that. That's just the easiest way I know to get that information out. And I'll remind you as it's coming closer. But that's one way that we can begin to educate ourselves about the myriad resources that we have in this area. If you encounter somebody and you don't know how to help them, you're always welcome to call myself. I would love to talk to you because I have kind of been studying what are the resources we have out here. Sometimes I'll connect them with somebody else from our church. Sometimes I'll connect them with somebody like Bill Nelson from Fresh Beginnings Ministries. Sometimes I'll connect them with somebody else from our community because there's a lot of resources. And the coolest part about what's going on in Costa Mesa is the churches are beginning to recognize that there's only one church. We're not in competition with one another. And we are all kind of banding together to go, how can we be on the same page and love our community in Christ's name? so that God gets the glory, so his kingdom advances and the people in our community are being taken care of. All right? That's one thing. But the invitation is simply, are we willing to be interruptible? Are we willing to slow down? And then are we willing to use the things that God has given us, blessed us with, in order to be a blessing to others? All right? So let's go and do likewise. If you'll bow your heads with me, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this very colorful illustration of what it means to be a neighbor to the people around us. And I thank you that you loved us first, and that's the only reason that we can even call ourselves sons and daughters of God. And you go beyond that to say, now I want to use you as my ambassador, as my representative. So would you help us to slow down? Would you give us reminders to be interruptible? Would you give us the eyes to see the needs around us and break our hearts for the things that break your heart? Would you invite us to join you in what you are already doing for your kingdom's sake? Because at the end of the day, this is not about feeding a person so that they'll, they'll have another meal. This is about nourishing their soul so that they will spend eternity in relationship with you being light in the darkness so that people can find their way to you. Would you use this church? We entrust ourselves to you. We say everything we've got, it's ultimately a gift from you. And we say, use us how you will. For your name's sake. And now as we take this offering and as we um, collect even the, the, the kind of interest forms of people who are wanting more stuff, I just pray that you would have your hand upon us as we even share our, our prayer requests for ourselves and for those we know. This is an act of our worship as well. We simply say, God, we want to orient our lives around you. We want to love you with everything we got. For your name's sake. Amen. All right. We're going to go ahead and take the offering right now, so I'd like to invite the um, uh, just to come on up. And... Um, 
If you want, if you know this one, sing along with us or 